Hi, guys. We could do open mic. I mean, I could totally drop this thing and just let you guys just do comedy routine. I think that would be appropriate. Um, <laughs> pray with me, please. Father, um, thank you for this time. Lord, um, we come to you today and we just ask for you to show us how we as ordinary people can come to understand you, this extraordinary God. Um, Lord, um, this week we continue all this information that seems a lot. It seems just like heavy. It's all this godly living stuff and this character uh, traits that seem unattainable at times. But God, I thank you that you remind us in the midst of this letter that it's all about Jesus and it's all about grace and it's all about salvation. And that's how we can live this life that walks toward you, not away from you. Thank you. So, Father, I pray for those of us that walk in today and we feel um, burdened and overwhelmed and scared and sad or, or, or just struggling, that you can remind them in, a, in your own little personal way, remind them today that you're with them and you're their biggest cheerleader and you never leave. Um, Father, we need that word today. So, thank you for the word of Paul for the letter of Titus. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Lauren, can you turn me up just a tiny bit? <clears throat> okay, guys, we're rounding out Titus 2, and Titus 2 has been just this giant book full of all this um, amazing information about how to live with godly character, right? Remember, we talked last week about Elizabeth Elliot's words, where are the Titus 2 women? And we want to be those women, right? And so we're going to continue with that today. And last week, we talked about all that sound doctrine. Everything has to be based on sound doctrine. We talked about that um, Paul gave specific directions to the older men and then to who? The older women. And then I said, hey, if you're an older woman, raise your hand. And then some of us raised our hands. And then I said, hey, if you're going to be an older woman, raise your hand. So, like, it's to all of us, right, no matter where you are. Well, this week we're moving into this whole, um, this whole uh, part that, that's directed to the younger men, to the younger men. But don't shut down and quit listening. Just remember, this is called godly character, and all of us have something to learn from Paul's words. We're going to talk about um, how we develop godly character in verses 6 through 10. Then, this is what's cool. Everything I read um, in this book reminds me that verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2, guys, guess what? It's the heart of the whole letter. Right in the middle of it. It's the heart of the whole letter. And so we're going to spend a little time there. And then lastly, we're going to talk about um, Paul's charge to Titus to step out in verse 15. So if you would, if you don't have your Bibles open, open your Bibles up to Titus 2. And I'm going to read a little bit and then I'm going to stop, you know, kind of like I do. I'm going to say some stuff and I'll read a little bit and keep going, okay? So follow along with me. I'm going to start in Titus 2 chapter, I mean, chapter 2 verse 6 talking about developing godly character. So let's take a look at what he says. He says he says this, likewise, there's that word again, right? Likewise, he's talking specifically to Titus here, you're to urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Remember all the time that we look at this, it's so important to keep it in context. Paul's speaking to who? Titus. He's giving him a job to do. He's saying, you are to encourage the young men. But did you notice something? Did you notice that when he says you're to encourage the young men and then he uses that, that one specific characteristic that we've seen like four times already, what is it? 
self-control, right? Every single people group that he speaks to, he says, you got to be self-controlled because, hey, guys, we might have a problem with that. I'm just saying. But here's what's cool about this part. He goes into verse 7, and he's, he's speaking to Titus. Did you see the change? He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model. You know why? Titus is a young man. He's telling a young man to then model and speak into the lives of young men. Wow. Important for us to recognize that. He's telling him, not only are you to exhort, not only are you to use words to say things to people, but you're to be an example to people. I love the idea of being an example. I think it's bigger than words. I'm just going to say that out loud. I think it's much bigger than words because you got Titus and anybody can say stuff. I can tell you all kinds of stuff about Jesus, but if I don't live like I really believe what I'm saying, my words are empty, right? Well, exhort and be an example. Share the gospel and when necessary, use words. Have you ever heard that before? I love that. That's what he's calling Titus to do to these young men. Now, the thing that's interesting when he uses the term young men, here's who he's talking to. Are you ready for this? He's talking to to dudes that are 12 years and up. Anybody know any of those people? They're scary, are they not? (laughs) Well, when he speaks about using words, he says also to be an example because they're going to learn more that way. You know, at our church at Rock Point, this is like one of my proudest things that I've gotten to see happen at our church. We have this ministry. If you, if you know young boys that are in ninth grade, we have this thing called Man Up. And you know what that is? Here's what it is. Here's what it is not. It is not a circle of, of boys that sit in a circle and then a guy in a sweater vest starts telling them about Jesus. It's not that. Rather, it's a bunch of boys that show up at a house and they stack their phones in the corner or they have to do push-ups if they pull their phones out, which how about that? It's kind of cool, right? And then they've got these men who are choosing to feed into them by modeling what it looks like to be a godly man. And so they do a man skill, they get fed a meal, and then they hear a message. This is what we're looking at here. This, this idea that, remember earlier we talked about the Calvins? Remember earlier we talked about the older men? Well, older men were once younger men. And so this group of people is important. So Titus has a huge job. He's to hear these things. He's to model these things. And there's three specific uh, characteristics that Paul gives him for these younger men, okay? He breaks it out like this. First, he says they're to be self-controlled. Like I said, we've heard that a bunch of times. Um, But there's no coincidence that it's the first thing mentioned here. Self-controlled. What controls your thoughts and your motives? Um, Proverbs 4.23, jot that down in the corner. From your heart flows the springs of life. What are the things in that your heart that motivate you? And, you know, God calls us to be self-controlled, and that's not by accident. Because if we're not self-controlled, if we're not allowing God to give us the power and the wisdom to be self-controlled, who's controlling us? The world? Well, be self-controlled. Then be a model of good works. Like I said, that's what he was expecting Titus to be to these guys. That word, it, it, it's, it's actually in the Greek, it's tupos. And you know what it means? It means to be a pattern or an impression. A pattern or an impression. In other words, like if you think about a mold, like you think about, okay, if I want to create something and it has to be made in a mold, there's no way I can get the shape I want if I don't have the original. The word model, that's what they're to be. He's to have, um, there's good works as gospel living develops in us. This is what's interesting, and I feel like we always have to explain this. Anytime you see the term good works, we as Christians, we as believers in the cross, we as the ones who follow Jesus Christ and know that he died for every single sin, past, present, and future, have to remember 
That the word good works isn't, hey man, so do all these things and then Jesus is going to love you. Hey, so do all these things and then you're going to have godly character. You know what it is instead? It's when you choose to follow Jesus, when you choose to turn toward him and not away from him with your decisions, the good works that come are only proof of what you believe, right? The proof of what you believe, not necessarily how you get to Jesus. It's important to remember that. Every time I see that, I'm like, God, we got to say that. we got to remind ourselves that. And we got to live like we believe that. Well, the third thing he says is that these young men, and he tells Titus, you're to show integrity and dignity and sound speech in your teaching. Okay? Sound speech. There's these two Greek words. One is logos. You've probably heard it before. And one is ethos. And so when you're talking about sound speech, when Paul's telling him, here's what you got to say to these guys, he's saying, in essence, that you need to have your context correct. Remember the sound doctrine thing we talked about last week? You've got to have your context, but here's what you also have to have. You've got to have character that matches it. Because I can say anything I want to say, but if I walk out of here and I'm doing all sorts of things that call my character into question, you're not going to hear a word of my context, are you? You're only going to see what, how I live that out. So logos and ethos both. I love then that, that um, Paul finishes this little section with answering why. He basically is answering why, why do we want to even live that way? These, these, think about it, 12-year-old and up, okay? You got a 12-year-old, you've been around one? Okay. They're probably saying, well, why do I have to live like that? Well, Paul answers that question. He says, so that the opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Think about this for just a second. When you speak truth, when you live a life that follows after the Lord, are people going to talk bad about you? Yeah. They are. This doesn't say they're not going to. So, so don't read that into it. It's not saying that you are safe from being spoken badly about. You are safe from being slandered about. It's not that. Here's what it is. Instead, if your behavior is in accord with godly living, the words that they say about you are lies, right? Don't let the ugly words they say about your behavior be true. That's, that's the point. He's saying, you want to live this way regardless of what the world is doing. Because then when the people come and try to take you down, they can't take your character down. And they certainly can't take the truth down because the truth remains true. I thought about this. I thought, uh, in the news and stuff, which I avoid. So, like, I know no current events <laughs> because I'm that person. I just let them, like, I can't even read it. But you know what? More downfalls happen in the church because the silencers come after a messenger of the truth, right? They come after people for their behavior, right? And they fall. You know why? I realized it's, it's because of this. It's because the enemy doesn't have power to make the truth of Jesus Christ false. But what he can instead do is he can make the followers of Jesus Christ bad and busy, can he? It's a scary, heavy thing. And he's speaking this into like three sentences to these young men. And I'm thinking, do they understand the gravity of what he's saying? Because these younger men will be the older men. These younger men will grow to be the Calvins, the elders of the churches. Well, godly character, it has to be developed. It's one of those things that like, it's not like this magically bestowed upon you thing, right? Like when you talk about godly character, all the stuff we've read for a whole chapter of Titus 2, we're all like, dude, I am not good at all those things. All those things I am not good at. Well, it's not just like, boom, I accept Jesus and all of a sudden I have this character. It's a development. It's a process. 
Um, this weekend, I had, the, I had the gift of getting to hear Christine Kane teach. And if you were at IF or watched it or whatever, you saw it too. But you know what? She said one thing that really stuck with me. And, and I thought about this as I was going through our, our homework. She said this, that God only creates ordinary people. And God only uses ordinary people. But he's an extraordinary God. And so in the midst of all this idea of godly character, I have to remember I'm just an ordinary Chris. But God is an extraordinary God. Amen? And if he can use ordinary messed up me who doesn't get this right most of the time, he can use all of us. That's just such a big thought. Godly character, it's developed through example and exhortation. It's not just something that magically happens. Well, then Paul goes into this whole, um, this section, a couple of verses about bond servants. Did anybody look up bond servants? Did you see what those are? What are they? Slaves. Yeah. Slaves. Uh, this is tough. It's hard. It's hard when we get to these parts um, and, and because some parts in Scripture are hard to understand, and, and we just got to do the very best we can with what information we have. So I'm going to do my very best to give you some context. So before I read this section, I'm going to press pause. I'm going to tell you a couple things I learned about what was going on at the time in this culture, okay? Maybe that will help us kind of work through this in a good way. First thing I want you to know about um, slavery at the time is it was legal. It was legal, okay? Um, it, it couldn't be abolished overnight, and that's hard, isn't it? We read that, and we're like, Pa, why aren't you stepping on your soapbox and saying, hey, and by the way, P.S., it's super wrong. Well, Paul's not a politician. He's not a policy changer. He's a heart changer. He's trying to affect people for the Lord. And so just remember this. It's legal, okay? Doesn't make it right, doesn't make it better, just makes it legal, first thing. Second thing, in the Roman Empire, which is what we're talking about right now, this, is, this was staggering to me. One out of every three people was considered a slave. One out of three. And in other parts of the world during the same time, one out of every five. And, and with that, this is what's interesting. All of a sudden, you have this new situation. You've got slaves and slave owners who are coming to know this new Jesus movement and they're coming to trust their lives to Jesus and become Christian followers. And all of a sudden they're in a situation they've never been in before. They're in a room together in a living room singing Kumbaya together and they're slave owner and slave and they can't figure this out. They're both followers of Jesus but they don't know what to do with the places that God has allowed them to be in their lives. At the time, these first century churches, these congregations, were um, there was a significant number of the people in these churches who were slaves. What do you think about that? I love that. I love the fact that people that, that probably, in most cases, are yearning for freedom are finding it in Jesus even when they can't find it in their own lives. A person could be a slave as a result of a capture in war, a default on a debt, inability to support, and possibly voluntarily sell themselves. They could be sold as a child by destitute parents. They could be birthed to slave parents. They could be convicted of a crime or a victim of kidnapping and piracy. Unlike the slavery that arose in the Americas in the 1600s, slavery in the ancient world was racially indiscriminate. It cut across racial, social, and national lines. As with many other pieces of property, slaves had no rights. And yet, the state of slaves varied in the ancient world. Listen to this. This was kind of surprising to me. Some were forced to work, while others were highly skilled workers and trusted administrators. So you have this huge range of people that are considered slave labor 
at the time during the Roman Empire. We would have hoped to see that the rise in Christianity, that slavery would have met its demise, but we know that that's not the case. So what you have here is Paul teaching to what is happening in the world at the time. And in fact, Paul teaches that the bondage of sin is infinitely more destructive than man's bondage as a slave. Just let that sink in for just a second. I know there's nobody in here that's a slave, but you're a slave to a lot of circumstances in your life. And, and maybe you're in a really dark, terrible place. And maybe that, that really dark, terrible place is that you really, really have a sorry job and you have to serve a terrible boss. Or maybe you're in a, in a really rough marriage and things are falling apart. Or maybe you have a diagnosis that you feel like it has absolutely enslaved you and entrenched you and you can't move. Paul wants us to know that bondage of sin, the bondage of our soul, is way more important than physical bondage that a man can put us in. It's hard to understand that, isn't it, when we read those words? Well, usually when Paul teaches about slavery, he will teach, in, in several of his letters, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, which we're going to hit at the end of this, um, set, we're going to hit it, I think, week 9, 8 and 9, um, 1 Peter, he follows it with how slave owners must not be abusive with their authority. In this case, he doesn't even address slave owners, and we're not exactly sure why that may have something to do with what was going on in Crete. That, that island of people, we're not really sure. But for whatever reason, he wants us to understand that these bond servants, these slaves, maybe because they make up a huge portion of the church, I'm not sure, but they have to understand that godly living still extends to you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. So, unpause. Okay, I'm going to read that section. Now think about it in those terms as we look at this together, okay? Verse 9 starts this way. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, and they are to be well-pleasing, non-argumentative, verse 10, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, and, and pay attention to this part, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He's talking about slaves and saying through their behavior they're adorning the doctrine of Jesus Christ. That's huge. Three main directives that he gives for Christian slaves. He's telling them that, number one, they're to avoid disobedience. They're to avoid disobedience. They're to be pleasing in spirit, in everything, meaning in scope, everything, in spirit, in their attitude, everything. Easy? Is it easy in your life? Is it easy in your good circumstances? No. He's asking what seems impossible. But remember, we are ordinary people who serve an extraordinary God. Avoid disobedience. Two, don't be known for disrespect or talking back. In other words, be polite in your speech. A lifetime of good work can be undone by just a few words. Words are a window to our soul, aren't they? Three, he says, instead of stealing, we're to be honest and trustworthy. They're to be honest and trustworthy. I think about this in our terms of our lives right now. Those of you who are sitting there that were nodding when I say you have a job that's really no good and you have a boss that you have to follow that's really terrible. And, and I started, started thinking about this. Instead of stealing, we have to be honest and trustworthy. And that means from paper clips to corporate jets, right? I am not going to choose to not live following after Jesus Christ because I serve a terrible boss. I am not going to choose to, to not have words that come out of my mouth that point to Jesus just because I'm in a really bad, unfair situation. 
And it's hard for us to see that now as we sit in these nice, comfortable chairs with our cups of coffee in Flower Mound, Texas, and read about these people that we can't even understand what they were going through. But we can understand what we go through, can't we? And we can understand that we can identify with them and that it is hard to do this. It's hard to live like this. Paul's not an idiot. He knows that. Ordinary people, extraordinary God, he's basically telling them this. You are to live this way so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. You know what that means to me? It means this, be unexpected. Live, conduct yourselves in a way that people look and go, how in the world is she living like that? I don't even understand that. Only God, only God could let that happen. Well, as I was thinking through all this, I, um, in my homework, you know, I got to that page and I couldn't get off this one little section. And so that's why I'm here forever. Sorry, guys. That's what you get. I couldn't get off of this because I thought, God, it's so hard for me to read this and understand this. And you know what I thought of? I thought of a verse that's way back here on the left side of your Bible before Jesus shows up on earth. And it's in Jeremiah. And I thought about this, this verse, and it may, I don't know what it might mean to you, but to me, I was just like, this is what, this is what he's saying. Um, Jeremiah, in, in chapter 20, verse 9, um, this is what you need to know about that book of the Bible, just real briefly. He was, a, he was a, a prophet, and you know what a prophet is? A prophet is God's mouthpiece, okay? So, like, God has something to say to people, mostly in the Old Testament. He'll say it through a prophet. He'll say, I'm going to tell you some stuff, Jeremiah, you go tell the people. And he'll be like, what? I don't really want to do that. But then he'll do it. Okay. That's, that's what a prophet does. Jeremiah was doing that in the old Testament. He had a bunch of real, um, begrudging followers that didn't want to hear what he had to say. And it was very discouraging. Okay. But he knew that he had to say what he had to say, no matter what they did and no matter what they said in return. And so in verse chapter 20, verse nine, he says this, when he's having to speak about the Lord and he's having to say what God wants him to say, because God's telling him to say stuff, guys. And when he goes and says it, it's the, the reception is not cool, okay? So this is what he says. Jeremiah says, if I say, I will not mention him, meaning the Lord, or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary from holding it in. I cannot. There's a fire in my bones, and I can't hold it in. He doesn't say, you know what, um, I'm really good at talking about the Lord whenever things are cool. Like, you know, I'm in, I'm in a good circumstance. Like, I have my quiet time set in my fireplace. I've got candle burning. I'm just hanging. i got nice soft worship music playing. And I am good at talking about Jesus then. No, what he's saying is, I can't not. I can't not. And so that's what made me think about these, these bond servants, these slaves that are in these circumstances that we can't fully understand, but we can only understand the slavery that we're enduring, right? And in the midst of that, I ask you this, do you have a burning fire in your bones and you can't not point to Jesus no matter what? No matter what your circumstance, no matter where you are in the process of your circumstances, and no matter how it actually ends up playing out. Because this is what I know. I know this. I know that there are wrecked marriages in this room. I know that there are painful um, illnesses in this room. I know that there are losses that are being endured in this room. I know that there are things going on that some of us know and some of us don't know because we have so much shame that we can't talk about it. And it feels like nobody could understand it. But I want you to know that you don't have to be a slave to that. You can instead in everything adorn the doctrine of God our Savior because you can live a life with his help 
that people look at you and go, I can't even understand how she's living like that right now. I don't even get it. And you get to go, yeah, because it's not me. I'm an ordinary girl. It's an extraordinary God. No matter what your circumstance, no matter where you are, no matter how it plays out. As I was thinking through that, you know, words, words like fairness, words like victim, you know, words like um, fault, deserving. All those things came up for me as I was thinking about the, the slavery, the literal slavery talked about in Titus 2, but then also the, the figurative slavery that we all endure, right? All these words that like, yeah, but you don't understand like my deal, like my deal's worse. My deal is not fair. Well, can I say this with love and not look at your direct eye contact? Um, there are no situations that warrant the truth of Jesus to be put aside because you're bad circumstances. There just aren't. There's not an asterisk in here that goes, yeah, everybody live like this except for Chris. Because Chris, your stuff is real bad. And I know it. You don't have to, you don't have to live like that. There's no asterisks, guy, guys. There's just not. Instead of words like victim and fairness and fault, I, I ask God, you know, show me some stuff, show me some things, some people, some ordinary people in the Bible that I need to cling to right now, some words that you need to hear. I'm going to move through them fast, and I know I put the list on the screen, but will you just listen for a minute and ask yourself this? Do you hear um, echoes of pointing to the Lord in the midst of, of bondage? Do you hear echoes of, of pointing to Jesus and choosing to live with godly character even when you are completely at your worst? And remember, these are ordinary people, okay? In, in Genesis 50, verses 19 through 20, there was this guy named Joseph. And you might remember him. He had a real flashy coat. You know, you heard about that guy. Well, his brothers took him, threw him in a pit, wanted him to die. Well, long story short, he ended up going into the slavery, and nobody knew he was alive and lived this hard, difficult circumstances where he was imprisoned, and then he was falsely accused of things. And somehow, some way, he rose up to a position of power within um, the government. And so all of a sudden he finds himself like in power over all these people and his brothers come back. And at first they don't recognize him, but then once they do, they realize, oh man, we threw him in a pit. <laughs> we in trouble. But this is what Joseph says to them, to their faces, the guys that tried to kill him. He says, do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Did they deserve it? He was a slave. A slave that pointed to the Lord in spite of his circumstances. In Daniel 3, 16 through 20, there's these three dudes. Anybody familiar with VeggieTales? Anybody? Rack, Shack, and Benny. Yes, thank you. Okay. I can never call them their real names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's better to say Rack, Shack, and Benny. There's these three dudes, and they came, and, and, and the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, right? <laughs> he said, I'm not going to keep going because everybody else is going to, they're going to be real tired of that. But he said, you have, to, you have to bow down to me. And they said, we won't bow down to anybody but our Lord. And so you know what he said? You either bow down to me or I'm throwing you in a fiery furnace. Sounds terrible, right? Pretty terrible. Chris probably would have been in the corner like, okay, time out. Um, whatever I have to do to stay out of the furnace, but not these three. You know what these three did in Daniel 3? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. 
If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. Listen to this. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Can he save you? Yes. But even if he doesn't, he's still God. Is that fair? Ruth 1 Verses 16 through 17, Ruth was this, was this woman who, who was a Moabite, and she married Naomi, was her mother-in-law, married her son. And, and they, here they are in land far, far away, and all of a sudden, the father-in-law and all the sons die. And all of a sudden, Ruth is faced with this idea of, do I go with my mother-in-law back to her, her world? People are not going to accept me. They're going to hate me because I am not like them, and I do not look like them, and I don't live like them. But what she did was make a choice to go with Naomi in spite of her own will. But Ruth replied when Naomi said, don't come with me, it's not gonna be good for you. She says, don't urge me to leave or turn back from you because where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. She could have taken the other way. She could have made a much easier choice, but instead she is in this circumstance, this unfair circumstance that she did not deserve. But she's looking to the Lord. In Acts 16, 25 through 29, we've read this before. If you've been with us through Ephesians, um, see if you recognize the, the dudes in this one. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a giant earthquake and the foundations of the prison were shaken and at once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose and the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought all the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, do you remember what he said? Don't harm yourself, we are here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and asked, sirs, what I must do to be saved? How can I be like you? Because everybody else ran out of the jail when all of a sudden their bondage was free, their bondage of men, they were free, but instead they chose the Lord. And in turn, a change was made for eternity. The jailer he became a Christian. Who knows what happened to his family? Who knows about what that legacy looked like? But in that moment, Paul and Silas had an offer to escape. They could get out of that. And they didn't. Is that fair? Luke 23, 34, Jesus hanging on the cross. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. He could have escaped, but he didn't. He chose to hang on the cross for everything that we have done are doing and will do. I, I reread this section on slavery differently now because I remember that while I am ordinary and I am enslaved in a million different places in my life, I serve an extraordinary God who can free me from this. No matter what Chris's circumstances are, no matter where Chris is in the process, no matter how it plays out for Chris, so that in everything, Chris may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Godly character has to be developed no matter where, what, or how our life circumstances go. We don't get a pass when things are bad. Well, I think I've sufficiently beaten that dead horse. I'm sure you're all happy we went past that, but 
Let's move to verse 11 through 14, and this is the heart of the letter. And we're going to spend a little bit of time here, and I hope that you hear this and read this in a different way because this is everything. If nothing else, you walk out, walk out with this. He changes his focus now from godly living. Now we're going to talk about the central aspect of why, okay? And that's grace. Verse 11, for, gra- for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Listen, grace. It's a word that I don't know how long you've known Jesus. I don't even know if you, if you know Jesus is your Savior. Because I'll tell you this, you can listen to things about Jesus. You can read a lot of stuff about him. You could essentially even hang out with him. There was a guy in the Bible named Judas who hung out with him for three years. And never that we know had a saving faith in Jesus Christ. But let me just ask you this. Do you know him like have you surrendered your life to him? Do you know him that way or do you just know of him? There's, there's two different things here. And so this section is making sure Paul is, I love Paul. Paul always goes back to, the, to salvation through grace, through Jesus Christ, doesn't he? Always circles back. You can live however you want to live. You can look all pretty and shiny. But if you don't understand what grace is, you're just reading about it. And so he says um, that, that, that what we need to understand is that grace is the foundation of it all. You'll notice, you you saw the word salvation in there. You saw the word savior. Seven times in this letter, starting here, you're gonna see savior. Seven times you're gonna see the word salvation because Paul is going to just, he's gonna overwhelm us with it. Grace. The word for that begins that sentence in verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. What he's trying to say with that word, to start the sentence with that word, he's saying that that's the foundation for everything that you just read. Everything in chapter 2 is essentially meaningless if you don't understand this part, okay? Grace is God's unmerited favor. We've heard that before. Grace, getting what you don't deserve. I, I think for me, I've, I accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was 15. I probably didn't really start living for him until a lot later, But I think for me, that word grace gets watered down because I grew up here. You know, I grew up in the town where there's churches on every corner. I don't know if you did or not, but for those of us that have been entrenched in in the beauty of what Jesus did for us, a lot of times that word grace doesn't hold the meaning that I think it should. And when I read this, I'm like, God, what do you want us to understand about grace? And, And I don't know, this metaphor may be a stretch, but for me, I started thinking, you know, what does that look like? What, what, is it, what does it really feel like? What do I want? What's the impact I want the word grace to have on me every time I hear it, see it, or experience it? And I thought about, um, have you ever seen on, on, like, on the internet where you see those videos of, of when someone dies a sudden death, but they have chosen to be an organ donor? Do you know what I'm going to say? And, and I've seen them recently and it just overwhelms me and I can't not watch because I want to feel that. Because what happens is a lot of times these hospitals have this certain um, code that they call out over the speaker and if there's a, there's a person that, that is no longer has a viable life but they're keeping them alive so they can harvest their organs on the way to the operating room, people line the hallways out of respect just to watch this person go by and pray or 
you know, whatever they're going to do, but just, just respect for the fact that they've given something that's going to give life. You know, then I think about, I've had the privilege of knowing a few people who've received organ donations, and, and that's a whole thing. But let me tell you what I've learned. I've learned this, that when you receive an organ that saved your life, that was donated from an unknown donor, you feel like, I don't deserve this. Why is my life better than the person one name down on the list than me, right? You receive this thing that you didn't fill out an application, and it's not like the person that donated the organ was like, okay, let's do tryouts, everyone stand up. It didn't happen like that, right? It was this gift that was given and that everything was sacrificed so that you could have this gift of life. And that's what I want to think about when I think about Jesus. Not just, um, I wear a cross necklace and I got a little fish on my car and, you know, praise Jesus and I'm I'm a church girl. Okay, no. I want to look at this and I want to be overwhelmed by it every single time. That grace is not just about something, something sweet and precious in here. It's, it's that he took on every dark, ugly thing that you have shame and pride about and that you're embarrassed about. He took it. Every single thing. And he died for that. That's grace. You received something you did not deserve. Three things that he says specifically about grace here that we need to hear. First is this. In verse 11, grace redeems us. Grace redeems us. You know, think of it this way. The word redemption, that means there's a change in position. So the minute you accept grace, the minute you receive the fact that Jesus not only was this super cool dude that, that had long hair and wore sandals, and we talk about him a lot and quote him on Instagram and stuff, but he did something that changed eternity for you. There's a change in position. And that word, the big churchy word there is justification. Okay, that's something that's occurred. A justification has occurred, a change in position. Now your life looks different. In that same verse, in verse 11, he uses the term all men. Understand what he's saying here when he says all men. Universally, all men need salvation. That's a universal need. It's also universally available through Jesus Christ alone. Universal need, universally available through Jesus, okay? Grace redeems us. The second thing that grace does in verse 12, he says, grace reforms us. Think of it this way. Okay, the the big word for that is, is sanctification. You know what that word means? That means that there's a change in attitude, appetite, ambition, and action. Okay, before there's a change in position. You, you've now been accepted into this new life that you didn't have before, but now here's what grace does. It's what he's doing right now in this moment in these chairs is he's going to change the way you see things. He's going to change the way you, in slavery, in your bondage, in your life, all of a sudden you realize everybody's talking back and everybody's doing this and stealing paper clips, and you're going to sit there and go, I don't think I can do that. feels weird. That's what, what reforming us means. It means he is changing you. It is a constant thing. That's sanctification. Change in attitude, appetite, ambition, or action. The third thing that Paul reminds us that grace does, and he says this in verse 13, is he says grace rewards us. Grace rewards us. Now, that's future. And what he's meaning by that is there's a glorification that's coming. There is a a blessed hope that we look forward to. You know what that means? That means that the Jesus that we follow, the Jesus that we so desperately want to see face to face, is coming back. And that's something that we can trust and believe and hope for. Grace redeems us, yes, but I think a lot of us stop there. It can reform us and it rewards us. 
Grace alone makes a way for us to live out the principles that Paul laid out earlier in Titus 2. That's the only way. All those things you read about sound really cool, and they, they, they're, they're really sweet and precious when you put them with a you know, landscape behind them, and you put them in a cute font and put them on your Instagram. Real pretty and stuff, but you can't do that by yourself. No offense. You just can't. The only way you can do it is through grace. That's it. Well, the last thing he says is he's going to call Paul and call him to step out. And it's a little aggressive comment, isn't it? I mean, he's not joking around. He's not missing words one single bit. In verse 15, he says this. Now, just imagine, I just imagine Paul, like, shaking his finger at Titus and saying all this stuff, and then he finishes it with this sentence. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. He's saying, declare, you need to speak You need to understand there is a need for proclamation. This place that you're going, there's a need for those words of truth. And then he's saying you must exhort. There's needs for application. They have to understand that all these words aren't just a bunch of rituals we're following. They're ways to apply to our life in Crete and in Flower Mound. And thirdly, he's telling them to rebuke. You know, you've got to correct things that are false. There's a need for correction. You can't just go out and, 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 and not call something what it is and then turn and make a correction. It has to be, you call it what it is. That's wrong and false. This is right and good. And that's what he's giving Titus to do. Anybody ever wonder if Titus is like, dude, I did not know all of this was going to be part of my job description. Okay, I do all the time. I always wonder what Titus is thinking. Because we, we don't get like... A parenthesis that says, and Titus was sweating, or, you know, whatever. We get nothing. Because I'm thinking he's reading this going, oh. Anyway, doesn't matter. John MacArthur says this, and I'm going to close here in just a minute. John MacArthur says this about this one particular sentence, and I thought this perfectly lays it out for us. He says, this is one of the clearest, strongest statements in Scripture about spiritual authority of men whom God calls to minister his word and shepherd his people. What are we needing to do? What, what are the needs that he's calling us to handle? Like there are things that we in this room need to satisfy, needs that God is calling us to, places that you are in bondage, places that you are impacting other people, places that you need to ask for people to impact you. What are those places? I, I, I posted this on Facebook, on our little uh, class Facebook page last week, and it is it just gets me every time, and I hope you just let these words soak in for a minute. And, and don't just look at this book like, hey, he t- too bad for Titus. He's got lots of stuff to do. Well, he's calling you to satisfy needs too, gang. You don't get to just sit in a chair and soak it in. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Yours are the only hands with which he can do his work. Yours are the only feet with which he can go about the world. Yours are the only eyes through which His compassion can shine forth into a troubled world. Christ has no body on earth now but yours. What needs is he calling us to satisfy? Are you in a place of disadvantage or discouragement or struggle or pain or hopelessness? Are you in those places? Well, sometimes in those places, we discover if our faith is real, don't we? Those are the places that it gets just like super real. And so I want to encourage you, if you're in one of these places, if you're in bondage right now, just know that he is there and he can get so very real with you if you will let him. Allow him to develop you, invite him to save you, and step out to tell who he is and what he's done. Are you his and are you living like it? That's what we have to ask ourselves when we read this. I'm going to pray and then um, you're going to run and go get your kids, okay? Father, um,
Who are we? I, I just, I pray that every one of us walks out of here asking that question, who am I to you, God? Who am I? And what are the needs that you want me to satisfy? I don't want to be a person that sits and just takes it in like a history class. I want to be a person who lives this. I want to live this. I want to be the slave that looks different and everybody looks at me and doesn't understand how I could endure the circumstances I'm enduring, but yet I still sing praises to you. And when the chains fall and I get free, I still stay in the cell because I want the, the guard to come to know you. God, that's who I want to be. And I'm terrible at it. I am confessing that. Sometimes I want comfort. All the time, I want comfort and I want easy. And I want to tell people about Jesus and the comfort of my own little place. And so challenge me, Father, to be different. And um, I pray that you challenge these girls in this room to be different. We want to walk towards you, not turn away from you when things are hard, Lord. Thank you so much that you love us enough to give us the hard words. You love us that much. Father, thank you for sending your son, not to just be a good dude, but to be the savior of the world. And if there's anybody in this room who only knows him as a good dude, will you just get very real with them in this moment and show them that they cannot move forward without facing the fact that he is either who you say he is or he is not. Lord, we know who he is. Thank you that you sent him. In Jesus' name, amen.